0: I'm here with Dan Turner, who is co-founder of, and CEO of Traxel, and he's invented a way to paint fiber optics and other infrastructure directly on a paved surface. services. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. So walk us through where was the genesis of Traxel and how did it get started? Yeah, so my dad,
1: like so many other Americans I've come to find out, but he had a challenge getting high-speed internet out to where he lives. And he called up the ISP and they drove out to his house and basically laughed at him and said, you'll never get fiber out to where you live. You're just too far out. There's not enough homes to justify trenching. There's no telephone poles in the neighborhood. And they left and that left me a little miffed and wanting to try to solve that problem. And just this idea came about where the fact that the ISP drove to his house using the road network. My thought was, could we piggyback off the road network and be able to paint a fiber line, a communication line to, to help bring that internet connection to the house? And so that was the whole start of the idea and has what led us grow to where we are.
0: And how does the actual product work? Or how'd you come up with, as you were saying, okay, we're going to use a roadway networks, fiber and communications have always used right of ways but you took a very different approach.
1: Yeah, it was this high-level idea of a paint striping machine that had the ability to carry the internet in it. And uh, my previous experience working with optical fiber, this idea of making it really small and really low impact to the surrounding environments and really high speed to deploy. I just started tinkering around in the garage. I started crawling around on my hands and knees and playing with different resins and chemicals and fiber optic cables and trying to figure out a way to establish that communication line that would be resilient to the traffic that that a road typically would see. And yeah, I just started crawling around on my hands and knees and I eventually moved out of the garage and into the driveway and then into parking lots. And then it very quickly became evident through... Wearing holes in gloves and knee pads, that we needed to also invent a machine to help that process and be able to install the lines in an automated way. And thus, we invented another technology called the Trackster, and that's the machine that automates that installation of that fiber line, which we
0: call fiber tracks. So, as you were coming up with this, was you pretty much had this as a concept of we're gonna we're gonna paint on fiber connectivity right on top of a roadway early on? Or was that? Yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, it's there's always a bunch of knowledge and learning that kind of comes along with it. It was really at that very basic idea of miniaturizing everything and using the smallest fiber I could find and using the smallest amount of resin that I could easily glue down this fiber cable. And Just going through those iterations and learning about the resins that we found and the epoxies and the different sort of glues that we came across and realizing there was like a huge array of polymers that could work well. And we settled on one that we really like and is working really well for us. And then going from a single fiber to two fibers and trying to lay these two fibers in parallel and then realizing, ah, two, we probably want some redundancy. Let's go ahead and just make it four. And now we're trying to lay out these four single fibers out in, a, in sort of a ribbon. And that was posing all kinds of challenges. And then we identified, why don't we just do a single cable that had multiple fibers in them? And so now we're Uh, up to 12 fibers in a small tube and a small armored cable that we can bond to the road. And that's working really well. Yeah, it definitely took some iterations to get to that point.
0: And then once you put this material down, how does that connect to some type of optical switch?
1: Yeah, it was okay. We can put fiber on the ground. Now, how do we get it off the pavement and off the road and into a junction box or a handhole or up a pole into a wall mounted box? And so we had to invent all of the ways of making that transition off the pavement. The way we do it today is we just create a small hole either near the edge of the pavement or through a curb, and then we drop that cable into a microduct and that micro duct then carries that cable to the junction point that we need to bring it to.
0: Oh super cool. So as you've you moved out, you found your you move from the garage, the driveway to, to real roads, it's just how has the business changed for you?
1: Yeah. We started off thinking, okay, we have this new capability. We're going to go out and go and bid on fiber installation projects. And we found ourselves spending a lot of time, if we actually won the project, to to be pulling cable through the ceilings of buildings and mounting boxes and splicing fibers. And it was really taking us away from the development of the technology itself. And so we've since pivoted to more of this printer ink model where we want to be the manufacturer of the technology of the tracksters and then be able to provide those tracksters for other fiber installers to use wherever and however it makes sense for them. And then we would just charge for the use of the equipment and then sell the protective coatings and fiber that feed through that machine. So that's how our business model has evolved over time.
0: And how long have you been at it? (laughs)
1: <laughs> a little embarrassed to say, had the idea back in 2014. Was moonlighting it for a little while before going full time on it around the 2017 2018 timeframe. We were really scrappy and trying to get every amount of money and funding that we could through the grants and awards and contracts without trying to raise that series seed and uh, and we just continued to work on it. it for many years le- with no paychecks coming in, uh, moving into my parents' basement to save money kind of a thing and just doing whatever it took to get to that next level. It's been an exciting journey, but we're uh, happy to now be the co-founders. Me and my co-founder are now paying ourselves, so
0: we're pretty happy about that. That's that's a milestone for sure. For sure. Uh, I can reflect on my journey. Everybody thinks, hey, overnight success, but 15 years, it's all up and to the right every year.
1: Yeah, you hear that phrase, a 10-year overnight success, and it, I didn't really understand what that meant in the first part of my journey, but I'm hoping that I get to totally understand what it means towards towards a few more years after having worked on this.
0: So a lot of people talk about the different experiences that lend themselves to being better, more prepared as a startup founder, and you're a former government employee from the intelligence community. Talk about what type of skills that when you first showed up saying, I'm going to go work on this company. What did you have in your bailiwick that you think gave you an edge? And what were the things that you thought of this? Wow, I don't know anything about this.
1: Yeah, part of running a startup is it's really a whole learning opportunity, learning how to run business and create business and find customers and build product. And so there's just so much learning. It's almost infinite, the amount that you can learn. But I definitely had a foundation to stand upon Coming from the intelligence community, I think giving me the ability to think outside the box, to work with pretty large budgets, to be able to lead teams in the field. These are definitely valuable skills that I think lend themselves to the entrepreneurial journey. And so I can't be more grateful from that experience and being able to work with technology and really high tech stuff that really did provide that foundational layer and the confidence to go out and say I can start my own business with a new technology and build it from the ground up.
0: And since starting this a few years ago, what where have you felt from a skill set perspective you've had to learn or you've been, been able to cover off on in terms of things you didn't know before that you're able to th- solve those gaps?
1: Yeah, the first one that probably comes to mind is amazing, right? When you work on a project for the government, the funds are seemingly there when you need them. When, as a startup, it's the opposite, it's never there when you need it. And to go out and to convince people to give them their money to you, I think is one of the most humbling experiences and most rewarding when you can accomplish it. I didn't have really the concept of what raising around meant or what it took and realizing the amount of work that goes into totally fully understanding the business from the inside out to it's not this dream of oh i just wrote this idea on a napkin and handed it to somebody he gave me some money sure that might work maybe once or twice in in the entire universe but typically there's just a lot more work that goes into it. And just, I wasn't expecting that. It's like, oh, where? where's your data room? And I didn't know what a data room was. And so I figured out that a data room was, was weeks and weeks of work to put together and collect the data that was needed to overcome sort of the hurdles that were needed to get the caliber of investors that we wanted to get on
0: our seed round. Yeah. But you were, yeah, it seemed like you were successfully able to pull that off.
1: Yeah, I have a lot of great help supporting me along the way. I have a great co-founder, really good advisors, people that I would consider sherpas leading us up the mountain, being part of the accelerator and incubator programs that I was involved with. All of that, I think, lended itself well to getting to the stage that that I got to. It, it was definitely no no feat. The solo inventor and entrepreneur. It really took a bunch of people to take their time out of their day to help us get to where we are today. Definitely grateful for that.
0: How do you remember how many no's or how many times you went through the process before it was you got
1: to all <laughs> along the way, we my co-founder and I would always talk, okay, let's go raise, let's go raise our angel round or our seed round. We didn't even know what to call it. And we were looking for maybe 250K or 500 k We weren't paying her. I totally cut back on all Outside spending, like I mentioned before, moving into my parents' basement as a thirty something year old was a really huge sacrifice to make and you think that money really is what can help solve that but i think I think that at every point, the amount of money that we were going to go raise, we just knew that we could get to whatever milestone that was going to get us. we could do that on our own, and so it was really it wasn't an issue of more money. It was really an issue of solving the, the, the verbal challenges or the questions and being able to have really good answers and being able to do at least enough sort of garage prototyping to be able to successfully answer a question that we had. And so it was really a question of time and being able to just hold on long enough to be able to get the answers that we needed to overcome the challenges that investors were providing to us. And so that's really what kept us going, not to mention a great, source of capital that we did actually get to use without losing equity was the SBIR program that we won several SBIRs a small business innovation research grants and awards and contracts and then working with the DOD being able to provide a solution to them through understanding the challenges they were facing those were really good sources of money that could come in that could augment our R&D efforts and that uh, could keep us going without having to actually get to the point of raising that seed round.
0: And so successfully able to execute on it. What's different in the business today than it was before the funding round?
1: Growing the team, I think. One of the main things we knew that we needed to do was grow the team beyond myself, my co-founder, my, my dad was helping out, my uncle was helping out. We really needed to bring in employees to to be able to do the things that we wanted to do. And I think that's really what... The fundraising was for was to really grow out and build out the team that we had to be able to afford the space that we're now residing in and to be able to keep going after new opportunities while maintaining the current awards and contracts that we have. We really just needed the team to be able to do that. And that to me is like the differentiator between pre seed round and post seed round.
0: Got it. And have you thought about the business any differently other than from people? Are you more time bound? Do you spend your time on anything different? Have you thought about milestones in the future in a different way or it's business as usual?
1: I probably should change the way I approach my time, but it's still, it's been all in from the very start and I'm still responding to emails at after midnight and things like that. So I don't know if that's Quite, totally burned out of me yet, but with every new opportunity, the chance to bring more people in, I can start. It's really hard actually to begin to give up some of your responsibilities to other People and things that you used to do for years, and you know how to do and to hand that off. That's probably been one of the biggest challenges that I'm facing, but the time constraints are still extreme right now. Am I looking at the business differently? Yeah, certainly. We have the abilities to go after more things and do more things with proposal writing and with just executing on, on marketing plans to try to get more commercial customers. These are things that we really just didn't even have the time to do before. It does help change the way you look at the business when you have a team behind you that you're building on as well.
0: Gotcha. And as you think through anything you do differently, you're not changing the business model, you're not changing the, it sounds. It sounds like for you, it's just More of the same, which is probably one of the best things. means you had a good strategy already.
1: We have a good strategy. I think we're executing on our plan. One of the interesting things that coming out of us having and having this idea of, okay, we want to be the manufacturer and focus on the technology, is we are coming full circle where we are still having to go out and do demos and installations and go do installs for end users. And so there is a little bit of a going back to what we had before, but this time we have the team, the resources, the equipment, the tracksters to go out and actually do those installations. But it is funny that we are kind of going back to, okay, we need to prove this technology in the marketplace. We need to educate the market. And the only way to do that is we actually have to go do these installations ourselves and then build up that momentum. And then we can start handing off the equipment to other third party installers to utilize. We'll see where, how many cycles that goes into, but it was that chicken and egg problem. And that stepwise bouncing back and forth in incremental steps on each side of the business to get, to get a
0: really good strategy going forward. What's your favorite type of customer or best (laughs) type of day when you show up, you're like, this is going to go well. I can talk about the worst types of customers. Um, Oh,
1: let's go for that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you always hear the customer is always right when you're thinking about business and doing business, and you want to do right by the customer. There definitely are customers that aren't really your customer and they end up and you don't realize that and you want to solve the problem that they have for them, but you're you're not the right, have better use of your time really solving it for a different type of customer, I'll say. And so learning more about who our customer actually was, initially we thought it was municipalities and we were trying to go talk to municipalities and finding that the municipality still required the ISP to deliver the service, and it also still required the business owner or the homeowner that was going to receive the service, and the municipality acted as like the right-of-way. They owned the roads. And so we found that by trying to force all of these stakeholders together was a much harder than maybe going and targeting like a campus like environment where you're looking at a shipping port or an airport or a base or a school or a hospital where they own the network. They want to extend, they own the surface from which to extend it on and they own the endpoint from which they need the network to go. That has been, that's really much easier to sell to. And we know that if we get and do enough of those and then we find local fiber installers to those campus environments to go and support those campus environments or those end users for us ultimately, then eventually the technology will become ubiquitous enough to be serving the homeowners and business owners and the municipalities and the ISPs. But we didn't want it. We didn't know we didn't need to start there. We really figured that out along the way with a
0: lot of conversations with municipalities. Yeah, it makes sense. So what was the Single best piece of advice that you think you've picked up as a founder a few years in now? Was it accelerators? Was it work data and customer discovery? Was it you raised capital at a once? It sounds like you had a lot of things in place already. What type of advice would you give to new founders?
1: Yeah, that's a really that's one of the best questions I can be asked because I always come back to this moment when I was in a social impact incubator based out of DC called Halcyon. But there was this gentleman that came in and he put startup, founder, entrepreneurial life in this perspective. He said, you have to basically lash yourself to the mast of the ship and then sail into the storm, right? So what he was saying there is you really don't have a choice to turn back or to give up if you want to be successful with a startup. You have to basically just commit everything to it and can't fail no matter what, no matter how bad and how dark it gets. And I really took that to heart. And there there were some definitely some really challenging moments in the early stages, especially without any sort of paychecks coming in. You had to have already pre-made that decision that you just weren't going to give up. And I think that the way I flip that advice around and when I tell potential startup entrepreneurs the best advice I give them is I say, don't do it don't start that company, don't go after it. And it's tongue in cheek. And it's basically saying like the startup entrepreneur is going to ignore me. Who the hell am I to tell them what they can and can't do? They're going to go do it anyway. And so those are the people that I think really that will be successful as they don't listen to someone that tells them they can't do it and to not do it or don't do it. They just trust themselves to say, I'm not going to give up until I figure this out. And those are the people that I think that will have the greatest success as a startup founder.
0: Awesome. No, that's good advice. If you tell someone, don't do it, and they still <laughs> want to go through, punch through and figure it out, then you know that they, it's, that they really want to do it.
1: Yeah. If I can influence you and say, don't do it, don't start that company. And then they say, yeah, I think I'm going to listen to it and not do that then I think, I, may, I think everybody's better for it. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> awesome. Cool. Thanks for joining us today and appreciate your thoughts and reflections. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to the Securing Our Future podcast by New North Ventures, hosted by Jeremy Hitchcock. If you would like to learn more about how we are accelerating innovation through collaboration of the commercial and national security sectors, please subscribe to our newsletter at securingourfuture.us.